Morning. <clears throat> I got a text uh, Tuesday from our pastor, David, um, in the afternoon, and it said, Hey, can you give me a call when you have a minute, please? And Jennifer looked at my phone and said, Ooh, you're in trouble this time. <laughs> but it, I wasn't in trouble. He was asking me. Um, he was letting me know that he'd been exposed to COVID and uh, asking me if I would fill in to preach. And I told him, give me 16 hours. Let me think about it. And uh, I'll answer you in the morning. And uh, when I told him the next morning that I, that I would do it, I didn't realize that this morning was going to be my birthday. And so this morning's my birthday. And I told Jennifer that to, yesterday was my last day in my mid-30s. And today starts the first day of my early, late 30s. <laughs> Which I told her would last for 18 months. So, anyways, I'm 37 today. And uh, the sermon series we're in right now is Rooted and Growing. And David preached last week on the same passage that we're going to look at again this week. And when David asked me to preach, he said, you know, I feel like I made a good case that we ought to provoke one another to love and good works. But he's like, I'm not sure that I said how that works, what that looks like. So I'd like you to consider spending some time focused on that. And I said, sure, sounds good. Um, And as I sought the Lord and, and I believe listened to him and heard from him, I, I didn't feel like I could just focus just on the fruit of rooted and growing in Christ, the fruit of love and good works. But that I really wanted to go back and spend a little bit more time talking about the root of love and good works. So that's going to be our focus this morning. We're going to talk, talk about both, but we're going to start with looking back at earlier in Hebrews chapter 10. So if you have your copy of the scriptures this morning, either in person or online, I invite you to turn to Hebrews 10 verse 1. That's where we're going to start. We're going to end at the last verse that Lamar read, but we're going to start at Hebrews 10, and we're just going to kind of plod along through the whole chapter up to that point. Because I really want us to get the root right. For whatever reason, in my walk with the Lord, I cannot shake the absolute essential reality of getting justification right. We are made right with God by Christ alone. It's through faith in Him, and it's in His accomplished work alone. That is our foundation. And I want to make sure that before we get to the fruit, we get the root right. And I think that Hebrews 10 does a really good job of laying that out for us. So Hebrews 10, verse 1 says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The question that I have for you, that I hope you've wrestled with at some point in your life, is if Jesus was Jewish and followed the Jewish law, why aren't we Jewish? 
Why don't we ascribe to the same system under which Jesus lived? Hebrews 10.1 gives us the answer. And remember, the book of Hebrews is written to Jews. The reason we're not Jewish is because the Jewish system was a shadow. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. And then the other reason that we're not Jews who live under the Jewish system, although again, in Romans, Paul makes a really good case of why all who truly believe are the true Jews. The reason we're not in the old system anymore is because it has no power to perfect or to make whole an individual. The system did a good job of sanctifying the people of God in that it set them apart, made them look different than the world. But it had no power to make perfect, and it was just a shadow of the reality that was to come. Look at verse 2. Otherwise, Hebrews writer writes, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I've made the claim that the Jewish system is a shadow and it has no power to perfect. And in this passage, we have a couple pieces of evidence of that. The writer says that if they did have the power... They would have ceased, but instead, he says, they're continual. They're done every year. In the Old Testament law, there was a sin for when, I mean, sorry, there was a sacrifice for when you did something really wicked. And there was also a sacrifice when you uh, did something wrong and you didn't even realize it, that you found out after the fact. And then there was an annual sacrifice for atonement. And all those things were continual. They were done every year of a Jewish person's life. And then when they passed away, their children did them. And then their children's children. And it was constant. And there was a stream of blood that was always running out of the temple. The system never ceased. It was continual. And the worshipers who went and offered those sacrifices still had, this passage says, a consciousness of sin. So there was no removal, ultimate removal of the weight of sin and the guilt. So the evidence that there's no power is that there were continual sacrifices and there was still consciousness of sin. But there was a purpose in the Old Testament system and in the law and in the sacrifices. They were meant to be a reminder Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Your guilt was supposed to be in front of your face. You weren't supposed to, as a Jewish person, just rely on the fact that you were of the people of God. But you were still supposed to be reminded every year that there's consequences to sin. It's death. You needed that reminder. In the same way, hopefully, We preach the gospel here at Agape every Sunday morning. It's because you too need a reminder. Our hearts need to be stirred to look to Christ. So the reminder of sin, but also the Old Testament system had a purpose in that that it pointed to Jesus because he was able to take away sin in the way bulls and goats and spotless lambs are not able. 
The writer of Hebrews then goes on in verse 5 to quote Psalm 40. Before we read that, I want to remind you that Psalm 40 is written by David. And David is writing truths. Remember this as we read Psalm 40. The character, the person of David, the chosen king, is meant to point us to Jesus. The point of the story of David and Goliath isn't about bravery and courage. It's about Christ. That he slays the giant. David's writings, he wrote in the spirit, were his expressions of faith. They were laden with truth, but they were true of Jesus. It was David's writing, they were true but it was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament men of God are meant to point us to the New Testament Son of Man, namely Jesus, the Messiah. And what Old Testament saints saw in part, we as New Covenant believers see in full. So David expresses here in Psalm 40, but Jesus fulfills. So when you read the Old Testament, look for Jesus. Look for the pictures of Christ. Look for the types of Christ. It's not just a bunch of stories that are supposed to teach us morals. The Old Testament is supposed to reveal the shadows of who was to come, Jesus. So that's just an encouragement for as you read. Now let's read verse 5 of Hebrews 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. If Jesus does away with the first, does that raise questions in your mind? Because it does for me. If he does away with the first, then why the first? Why the system? Why was it so complex? Why did it exist for hundreds and hundreds of years? If Jesus was going to come and just remove it, why? That's what I just said. The system teaches us. In the New Testament, we're told that the Old Testament covenant was a tutor to get us to Christ. It teaches us first about sin. The New Testament says that the Holy Spirit comes to convict of three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin's the first. The Old Testament system teaches us about sin. Lamar mentioned Adam and Eve sinning and being removed from the garden. What was, what was the thing that Satan questioned Eve about? Did God really say? You won't surely die if you eat this, is what he said. But the wages of sin is death. And Adam and Eve were removed from the garden primarily to keep them from eating from the tree of life. The wages of sin is death. 
They were removed from the garden. And then what's the first thing God does? Apparently, He takes some animals so that He can take, He kills them and takes their skins so they can be clothed. A picture of the work that Christ does. The Old Testament system teaches about sin and death, the wages of sin, skins for covering our shame. Those were all meant to point us to Jesus. The Old Testament system had routine worship where worshipers went to the temple and offered sacrifices. Lambs, rams, bulls. And they always had to be spotless. That's meant to point us to the spotless sacrifice of Jesus, who was without sin. He who knew no sin became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Then remember, in the Old Testament system, there were special celebrations. Beyond just the routine worship, there were things like the Passover, which was meant to remind them of the work of God saving a people while the angel of death came, and blood was put over their doorframe, marking this as we are a house of God. That whole system is meant to point us to Jesus and set the framework so that when Jesus came, it was so clear to hearts that believed that He was the fulfillment of all those things. So it may be a reasonable question to ask why the system if Jesus comes and just does away with it, but the answer is because the whole system was meant to point to Him who would then say, well, now that I'm here, I'm the reality. The shadow is not what needs to be held forefront anymore. The second question that that comes to my mind, if Jesus is just going to come and do away with the old system, is how? How did that system make people right with God if it didn't take away sins and Jesus was going to come and just do away with it? How are people supposed to relate to God for hundreds of years if it didn't do the thing that we thought it was supposed to do? I am not a dispensationalist. I do not believe that God dealt with people one way at certain periods of times and then changed and changed over time. Not at all. Because I believe that the same way the Old Testament saints were made right with God is the exact same way we are made right with God. Paul takes many chapters in Romans breaking down how Abraham is the father of all who would believe through faith. Abraham isn't just the father of the Jews through blood and lineage, but he's the father of all who believe because he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's the way it worked then. That's the way it worked During the Old Testament system under the kings and the judges, that's the way it works now. God declares something and you believe. And you are made right with Him. Not because you believe, but because Christ, as Lamar pointed out, has torn the curtain down and enabled us to come into the presence of God. And that happens through the process of faith but it's because of Christ's sacrifice as the perfect lamb. The practicing of the old system in the, in the heart of a worshiper could have expressed two very, very different things. 
An Old Testament Jew could have come to the temple and offered a sacrifice, trusting that their adherence to that system was the means by which they were made a child of God. That is what the Mormons do today. They do many good things. They do many spiritual rites, following the law as a means of becoming a child of God. That is not what God has called us to. Because the other way an Old Testament saint could have come and been um, practicing in the old system was to show that they trusted in Him who has promised to protect them, to provide for them, redeem them, and glorify them. It's true for us too. We can obey God because we can think that our adherence to the law or to doing good things is the means by which we are made His child, or we can do it as an expression of our belief that He has accomplished what He said He has accomplished. You remember Abel? Right after the garden. God took pleasure in his sacrifice. You can infer that God gave kind of commands to um, Adam and Eve, maybe while he was making them skin coverings. Hey, by the way, the way you worship me is by sacrificing animals. It's possible. It's inferred in the text. Because he didn't delight in Cain's sacrifice, who just took um, some crops and sacrificed those. Instead, Abel sacrificed There's two things. The firstborn, and of the firstborn, he sacrificed the fatty portions. If you've known me for some time, you know that I really got into some survival wilderness living stuff. Like, there's a TV show I really like called Alone. And there's two people, it's been seven seasons so far, and there's two people who've done really good on that show. For those who don't know, it's a show where they take ten people, they drop them in the wilderness, they're all by themselves, and they have to live the longest. Whoever lives the longest wins a half a million dollars. Well, there's two people who've done really, really well on that show. One guy managed to kill a moose. And he, when they came to get him and let him know that he had won, he had been out there for like 87 days. He had 200 pounds of moose meat, 60 to 70 pounds of uh, dried fish. He had like a dozen smoked rabbits. I think he had some, oh yeah, he had um, part of a um, wolverine carcass. He killed a wolverine. When they came to get him, he actually fed the production crew because they had had a disruption in their supply chain. And he was like, I actually have plenty of food for y'all. The other guy who did really well lasted a hundred days, and he killed a muskox. And one of the things he said multiple times was one of his concerns was he wasn't sure he was going to make it because the muskox he killed was a very, very lean animal. It was an old bull with not a lot of fat. There's this one really crazy scene where he has the muskox head, and he's cutting out all the fat and cartilage pieces from the muskox nose. Because he said there's a lot of good fat in the head of an animal. And I need that fat to survive. We live in a very calorie-rich world. I know this because a friend who hadn't seen me a long time came over yesterday and he said, you're looking kind of pudgy. It's true. 
I've put on some weight since COVID. <laughs> but because calories are everywhere. But if we were living in a, in a, in a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, we'd be like those guys on the Alone Show where every calorie counted and the thing you wanted most of all was fat. The guy said who killed the moose, he killed the wolverine because it was coming and stealing the fat from his moose carcass that he had hidden. Fat is life in a survival situation. So, when Abel sacrificed his firstborn livestock and the fatty portions, he basically was saying, the only way I know I'm going to survive is if my livestock does well. What if the Let's say I've got 50 goats. And every year, there's about 5 to 10 more that are born. But some years are better than others. Some years it's really bad, and there's a disease that comes in and kills all the newborns. What an expression of faith that you take the firstborn, like, well, this is the first of next year's supply, and if this dies... All the others might die too. We might not have food next year. You're going to take the firstborn and you're sacrifice it. And then you're going to take the fatty portion, the thing that's going to give you and your family the most calories, you're going to offer that to God. That's why God delighted in Abel's sacrifice. Because it was saying, I trust you with me being able to eat. Let me... Show that by giving that to you. So, just, I, I want you to think about that as you think about giving and sacrifices and expressions of faith. A lot of it is about expressing and doing something. Was like I'm going to do this, but I don't know what that will mean for my future. But God is faithful, and He will provide. So, just just, just think about that. You remember Abraham? He sacrificed Isaac. That was faith on display. Abraham wasn't made right with God because he sacrificed Isaac. Abraham was made right with God because God said, I will make you the father of a great nation. You'll have many children. And Abraham believed him. And he believed him so much that when God said sacrifice Isaac, he was like, okay, I guess he's going to raise him back from the dead because he's promised he's going to do this for me. And I, I, I can kill him, I guess, but... I, I guess he's going to raise him back from the dead. Now, God stopped Abraham before he actually killed Isaac. But that's what's going on there. It's not because he sacrificed Isaac. It's because he believed God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. The Old Testament saints, the ones who got it, were children of God by faith. We today are children of God by faith. And that is lived out by expressions of that belief. Look at the Messiah's claim when he quotes Psalm 40. Sacrifices are not what God desires. Instead, it's Jesus' very body. Remember that for the end of this message. It's Jesus' very body. He also says that God is not pleased by the sacrifices. What then is God pleased in? We have the answer in Galatians 5, verse 5 and 6. Write that down. Galatians 5, 5 and 6. It says this. But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit 
the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, neither adherence to the law or not getting it all right, has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. In Psalm 40, it says that Jesus came to do God's will. Look at Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, so that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Without faith, without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's right. All right, Hebrews 10.10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had had offered for all time a single sacrifice, underline single, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Underline waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is the root from which we bear fruit, that Christ offered one sacrifice for all time, which was so effective it makes perfect everyone who will believe. And it's so sure that the last thing he said before he gave up his spirit is, it is finished. And it's evidenced in this text when it says that he's waiting. Jesus has accomplished all that the Father gave him to do, and now he's sitting down, waiting for the fulfillment of all things, where he will come and return and receive unto himself his bride, who God has called out and is making perfect. Do you remember when Xerxes it was? Was it Xerxes and Esther? Esther spent like a year getting ready to be presented to the king. She was being made, like there were beauty treatments that lasted a year. We are being made ready for our king. The church is being made perfect. That's a hard process that grinds against our flesh, but it's the process of sanctification. It lasts from the moment you believe to the day you die. But it is being made beautiful for the groom. But the groom is waiting because it's done. So you cannot go through the Christian life thinking that you screwing up is going to no longer make you a child of God. Because it's not based on your works, it's based on Christ's finished work, and it's so finished that He's waiting. That's the basis from which we live out our faith, what He has done. That's the root from which we bear fruit. 
Your faithfulness to God and your obedience to Him is not the foundation of your standing or the basis of your being a child of God. You are being adopted into the family of God because Jesus accomplished His work. Listen to this. It's not an external thing. It's not an external adherence to an old system. That's the oldness of the letter. We live in the newness of the Spirit. And that is accomplished internally. Look at verse 15 of Hebrews 10. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. That passage about writing the law on their hearts is Jeremiah 31. There's a similar passage in Ezekiel 36. Take out of your heart stone, give you a heart of flesh. Write the law on your heart and your minds. That which is outside, it's an external observance, is now an internal reality because God changes our hearts and puts His Spirit within us. I heard an example once, and I tried to find it over the past few days, and I can't find it. It's it's embedded in a sermon by Paul Washer. I really think it's a good example of this picture, so I'm going to steal it from him. Imagine you're in university, and there's a class you have to take. It's in your major... So it's in your field of study, and you're interested in the subject. But when you get your whatever syllabus, whatever tells you your professors, you find out that you got the professor who's notorious for being really, really demanding. And his standards are really, really high. and He he just doesn't cut any corners. And you just got to learn every single word of that textbook. And you're kind of like, ugh. And you show up to the first day of class, and there's only seven other people in the class. And the professor says to you, and the other people in the class, the fact that you've signed up for my class lets me know that you're serious about this subject. And I know I have a tough reputation But what I want to let you all know is that since you've come to class, you've signed up for my class, I'm going to give every one of you an A. There aren't going to be any examinations and tests by which you're measured where you might fail. The fact that you've enrolled in my class, you're all going to get an A. Now, let's enjoy the material. Let's get in and study and learn this together. Let's share with one another. Let's just dive in and enjoy it. Don't worry about your grade. You're all going to get an A. The preacher said, if you didn't care about the material, it wasn't even part of your major, you would never show up a day again. You just say, cool. And you walk out of there and you just know you're going to get an A and you never go back. But if you loved the material and you were challenged by it, 
you would delight in that A and you would eagerly go and share and learn with your fellow classmates. That's how it works. Jesus has done the work. We've got an A. Now we're called to enjoy Him, enjoy the material, enjoy our classmates, namely other believers. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. It doesn't say, let us hold fast our confession of our hope without wavering. For if you waver, you will falter, and if you falter, you will perish. No. We hold fast to our confession because God is faithful. Not because our faithfulness determines our standing, but we hold fast because He's done it for us. So we hold fast to that. Jesus is our example. God doesn't take pleasure in animal sacrifices. But He does delight in our faith expressing itself through love. And what He does desire from us is that we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. So that's the therefore. That's the root. Verse 24 and 25, this is the fruit. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Paul Washer gave another example one time. He said it's, it's this old story about Abraham Lincoln. He doesn't know if it's true or not. It's probably not, as a lot of those old stories go. Abraham Lincoln was going through a town in the south one time, and he happened upon a slave auction that was taking place. There was this one woman who was being auctioned off, and he bid on her until he won her. He got her papers, and he walked her outside the city, and when they got to the edge of the city, he took out her papers, and he signed them, giving her her freedom. And he handed her the papers, and he said, you're free. And she said, but you paid so much money for me. He said, I understand, but I'm giving you your freedom. Here you go. It's got my signature on there. I'm a lawyer. You're free. And her response was, well, if I'm free, I want to go where you're going. I want to follow you. That's just a silly story. It probably never happened, but it's a good picture that Christ has set us free. And so if we believe that he's actually set us free, our desire should be to follow him. Well, I want to honor you now. I want to live for you. So we are called to bear fruit, the fruit of faith expressing itself through love, and we are called to provoke one another to love and good works. Well, what does that look like, and how does that work? I don't think it works by scolding one another. I don't think it happens by us getting angry. I don't think it happens by us heaping guilt on each other or looking down at each other. It doesn't happen by nagging doesn't happen by naysaying. We 
provoke one another to love and good works, to express our faith, gratitude for what God has accomplished in us, here are some ways. The first one I wrote down is by experiencing the kindness of God through others' spiritual gifts. John, you have a gift of joy. I am blessed by that. And everybody in this church who gets to experience you expressing your spiritual gift of joy is built up. So continue in that work. Katie, I hope you're listening. But you have the gift of faith, and that work has transformed your life. Continue in that. You're expressing your spiritual gift, and it builds up the body. Rob, your perseverance and your prayers, that's a gift that God has given you. Keep doing it. Eric, your faithful, quiet service builds up the church. Keep doing it. You provoke me to love and good works by your quiet service to the Lord. Another way we provoke one another is by affirming other spiritual gifts. Let me tell you about the leader of GCs at Agape. He used to be a member of my GC. And I said to him, Eric, I think that God has probably gifted you to teach. And he's like, wow, that's crazy you said that. Like, that's been something I've been thinking about and wondering if God is calling me to. So he began to teach alongside me, and he began to lead a GC, and now he's the leader of the GCs in this church. So when we see another believer walking and operating in their giftness, we should be quick to affirm it and say, God is doing this in you. Walk in that. Another way that we provoke one another to love and good works is by humble encouragement. When Jennifer and I got married, we ran off and eloped. We didn't do things the conventional way. We weren't very wise how we done, how we had gone about doing it. In fact, on the way home from the courthouse, I looked at her and I was like, hey man, like, don't divorce me, okay? <laughs> <laughs> like, I was not sure. Like, we hadn't really, like, talked about that. I was like, I just don't think that that should ever be on the table. Like, that's how immature we had rushed into marriage. And there was this man that I really looked up to at the church. He had it all together. He had like seven kids. He was a professor at Auburn University. He helped teach Sunday school. He led a Bible study that me and a couple of my friends were in. Just like I just thought this guy had it all together. And he had all these children, and I was worried that I just set such a terrible example that, that when I saw him next, he was going to kind of be like, all right, well, wish you hadn't done that. But instead, the first time he saw me, he said, brother, I love you. And marriage is a beautiful thing. And if you ever want somebody to tell you the mistakes that they've made along the way, I am here because I've made tons of them. So this man that I looked up to so much who I thought I was going to see disappointment and kind of frustration with me just gave me humble encouragement. Just one beggar talking to another beggar. And it, I felt so encouraged that, okay, I didn't go about this really the normal way, but I can do it, not because I'm able, but because God has people around me who will love me through it and lead me, people who've made mistakes. So humbly encourage one another. I encourage you to operate in your own spiritual giftedness. Our pastor is called to be a pastor. I thank God for David. It is so obvious to me that he's called to be a pastor. 
He's walking in his giftedness, and we are all blessed by that reality. Another way we provoke one another to love and good works is psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I was in Mexico for a time in my life, and there was this tile layer who just all the time, he'd be working, and he'd just go, Santo, 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 Gloria a Dios. He'd just be working, and he just would always say, Santo, Santo, Santo. And he'd always just break out in song. The guy just had this joy, and he just wanted to express it by crying out to the Lord all the time. It was such a beautiful picture of a heart, just joyful in the Lord and expressing it. Tamara, my wife cannot hear you sing without crying. You have a beautiful voice, and you express it, and it, it emboldens my wife to worship. Keep doing that. Another way we provoke one another to love and good works, to faithfully pursuing the Lord, is by sharing the Word of God. It's been a number of years since I shared this, and a lot of you, I'd say at this point, most of you were not here when that happened. But I had an experience one morning where I was driving to work on a Friday, and I had a appointment first thing in the morning to sign a contract for a remodel with an old couple. And I got there early, and I had to lead GC that night, and so I was reading in the Psalms. And I think it was Psalm 34. And there's a verse that stuck out to me that said, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And it stuck out to me. And I was like, man, that's a, that's a, that's a really interesting verse. So much that I, could, like, I just kind of read it over and over, and I began to meditate on it. Next thing I know, it's 8 o'clock, and I go into the meeting. I present the proposal, they sign the contract, we're talking about how we're going to get started and what all is going to be involved for us to rip out their bathroom. And the phone rings. And the wife, who's 83, says, oh, this is gastroenterology, I need to take it. So she goes in the other room. And I'm sitting there looking at her husband, and we can hear her conversation. And she's like, okay, you and me come in on Monday. And the husband, who had previously been, I think, head of cardiology at Caraway, said, what test do they want you to take? And she, she asked, and she told him. And he said, that means it's cancer. He said, let me talk to him. So she gives him the phone, and it's the scheduling coordinator. It isn't even the doctor, but he basically asked to talk to the doctor. And he's like, I'm a doctor. Look, look, like, we don't need to come in on Monday for you just to tell us it's cancer. If you're going to give her that test, that means it's cancer. Um, let's talk to the oncologist. Let's cancel the Monday appointment. We'll come in and talk to the oncologist. And they're on the phone, and she comes and sits over, and she's just quiet, kind of looking down, fumbling with her hands. The husband comes back, and she says to me, I bet this has never happened to you before. <laughs> I said, no, ma'am. I I don't know what to do in that moment. And the husband looks at her and says, Rabbit, because that was her pet name. He said, Rabbit, uh, we'll get through this. The Lord's always taking care of us. And in that moment, I remembered the verse. I said, uh, Miss Betty, 
This morning, before I came in, I um, was reading Psalm 34, and there was a verse that I don't think it was for me. I think it was for you in this moment. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord will deliver them out of them all. And she looked at me and said, thank you. I believe that's exactly what is the case. The Holy Spirit wanted to tell me that truth, and I needed to hear that. We should be in the Word for our own growth and encouragement so that we can be transformed by the renewing of our mind. But another reason we should be in the Word is so that we can have fresh the Word of God to give to other believers. Because they might need it. They do need it. So build yourself up in the Word and have the Word ready to build others up. If I had just listened to a podcast or music on the way to work, I would have just been really awkwardly sitting there while a husband and wife were found were given the news that she had cancer. Another way that we provoke one another to love and good works is by praying for one another, because that is what happened to me on another occasion. I was in the office, and... A husband and wife came in to pick up a check. There were some subcontractors. And her, we were just chatting, and then she gets a phone call. She goes in the other room, and after about a minute, I begin to hear ah, the most... haunting noise I've ever heard in my life. She began to howl. Because she was getting a phone call that her cancer was back, which she knew was a terminal diagnosis. And in that moment, I had no scripture to give them. But I asked if I could pray for them. And I walked over and I put my hand on both their shoulders and I prayed for them. Tried to pray in the Spirit. I didn't have any words. Just asked the Spirit to speak through me. Sometimes we pray in the Spirit. We don't even know what we're saying. But the person we're praying for, it's like the very words of Jesus to them. So be quick not to give unsolicited advice. Be quick to pray for other believers. If they share with you a struggle they're having, don't just have the first thing you say be advice that they didn't ask for. How about the first thing you give them is, can I pray for you? Can I pray about that? John, you're very good at that, by the way. Another way we provoke one another to love and good works is by example. I have this friend who just, man, he just loves serving people. He does such a good job at it. He just loves them and he just, he'll spend his Saturday moving people, which is like, you call me and tell me you're moving on Saturday. I'm like, man, that's a bummer, man. I gotta work on Saturday or else I'd help you. But this friend of mine, man, he's just so good about just He's so faithful to lead his family in family worship. He's just so faithful to love other people. So he, he encourages me and provokes me to love and good works by his example. And I encourage him by rebuking him. Because one time he came over and he was so angry because his wife had made him late. And I said, man, I can tell you're angry. Let's list all the negative consequences of you being late today. Number one. Uh, 
And he was like, I get it. I get it. <laughs> I shouldn't be angry right now. It's not a big deal. Nothing, no big deal. And I'm like, yeah, man, there's no big deal. Don't worry about it. So sometimes we can sweetly rebuke one another, poke fun at each other. We provoke one another to love and good works by acts of service. Uh, when we moved to Birmingham, our church at the time met us at our townhouse. We pulled up in our truck that was full. And within 40 minutes, every single thing was unloaded. And then when we moved from our trailer to our house, a lot of the men who were in this room showed up and moved us from our trailer to the house. We got it all done without even renting a truck. Sometimes we encourage one another by our very presence. If you've ever looked closely at my left hand, I'm missing two fingertips. It was a woodworking accident. And when I was in the hospital, that same friend who I said is really good at acts of service and who I made fun of, he walked in the door. He had driven two hours just to come be with me because I had been injured. And he loved me. And I teared up. Just from him walking in the room. Because it was a friend who loved me and knew I was hurting and he just wanted to be near me. And so, a year later when I found out that my pastor had had an accident while holding a ladder for a tree cutting service and it cut off one of his fingertips, I dropped everything and I drove straight to the hospital and I was the first person to walk in the room because somebody who had walked through the same thing needed to be there for his pastor. So sometimes just being there reminds us that God loves us. Jennifer and I have been the recipients of so much love and generosity. Sometimes we provoke one another to love and good works by by giving and by being generous. Here are some of the things that Jennifer and I have been given. Four cars, a check for $1,700 to pay off a credit card, the very gift of fertility, somebody paid for Jennifer to have a reversal surgery, that was like six or seven thousand dollars. We've been given books, like dozens and dozens of books. We've been given tools. One of my favorite things to do is, uh, butcher deer and I have, uh, a 70 year old meat grinder that works like a thousand dollar meat grinder that somebody gave me. We've been given substantial interest free loans with no payment terms. We've been given those things because the people of God understand that everything they have isn't even theirs. It's the Lord's. And so people have been very generous to us because they've understood that what we have in this life is not meant to be held like this, but it's meant to be held like this. And in that, God is made beautiful. And we richly supply one another's needs. We provoke one another to love and good works, sometimes by shared experience. One, through, one time I went through something very, very difficult, and I called a friend who I knew had gone through something very similar. I hadn't talked to the guy in a couple of years. And I said, I just need a voice from the other side of the river, because I just don't know how I'm going to cross this river. And he began to speak. And after about 15 or 20 minutes of him sharing with me, he said, man, I just, I just feel like I'm rambling. I'm not even making any sense. And I said, no. 
I really feel like it's Jesus who's been talking to me this whole time. And this thing that I didn't know how I was going to navigate, I had full confidence that I could get through it and that God would sustain me. Not because of me and not because of this guy, but because as this guy shared his experience, Jesus encouraged my heart and let me know that he was near. And I couldn't go through a list like this without acknowledging my wife. Because another way we forgive, sorry, another way we provoke one to love and good works is through forgiveness and forbearance. And y'all, I am a mess. And my wife did do the thing I asked her on the way home from the courthouse. She hasn't ever sought a divorce. She's forgiven me for doing really stupid things, for keeping secrets from her, from hurting her, to leading our family poorly. She's forgiven me. And she's for, I don't know how you say that word. She's forborn. She's put up with me is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. But love covers a multitude of sins. So provoke one another to love and good works. Giving grace for one another to make mistakes. Humbly encourage one another. John, you can come up. So we are rooted in the reality that Jesus has accomplished a work. And that's the basis of our standing. We do not live out our faith, provoking one another good works, so that God will accept us. We do it like the slave who wants to go with the master, or like the student who studies the material because they know they've already gotten an A and they want to enjoy it. We do it because God is good and worthy and we fellowship with him and he's kind to us. Remember the gospel. That there's nothing that separates us from the love of Christ. Nothing. But he's called us to walk, living out our faith, expressing that through love. Father God, thank you for this body that you are perfecting. Continue the work of making us beautiful for your son. And I pray, Lord, that we would serve you not out of compulsion, that we would love one another not out of obligation, but that it would be an expression of our gratitude for what you absolutely have accomplished and out of hope that you will fulfill all of your promises and that we would see it played out when we would no longer be entangled with this flesh that is prone to corruption, but instead we would be given resurrection bodies like Christ, no longer encumbered by the flesh, but instead where now the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak, then the spirit will be willing and the flesh will be made perfect. Help us to gain ground, not for the sake of pride, but because you are worthy. Sanctify us and make us holy, I pray. In Jesus' name.